Hi there, my name is Jeremy McCandless and welcome to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. And the project is to work through the whole Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And here we are today and we're at the beginnings of our third season together and at this point in time we're working through the Gospel of Matthew. And today we're going to spend a couple of days looking at Matthew chapter 1 verses 18 to 23, which actually tells us the process of the naming of the baby. I'd just like to remind you at this point that if you're new, then why not consider joining us on this entire journey and go back and play catch up for a few months until you get to this point. And then you can stay with us for the remainder as we work through the entire Bible. But anyway, it's great to have you with us and let's just kick off. Matthew chapter 1 verses 18 to 23. Okay, we're in the opening section of Matthew chapter 1, but today we're covering verses 18 to 23, which is the naming of Jesus. And we're going to be here a couple of days thinking about the importance of of the naming of a baby. You know, when even today when couples decide they're going to have a child, one of the first things they do is they decide what they're going to name that child. Sometimes that's done well in advance. Sometimes it's done literally on the day the child arrives. Now, that's not normally much of a problem. But in some countries, a son is always named after the father and the daughter after a mother. In fact, in some countries and traditions, that remains the norm. I remember I was fascinated by a conversation I had a few years ago with someone from Iceland who explained to me why so many Icelandic men and women have similar sounding endings to their names, but different endings depending whether they're men or women. Now, I'm not going to reveal that for you today, but it's an interesting if you want to go and research that and how it works in that culture. Me, myself, my middle name is Ronald. That was the first name of my father, Ronald McCandless. In fact, until a few generations ago, my family name had a surname which was double-barreled. It appeared way back before my grandmother's time, someone, a lady from a higher social status, married into our family and wouldn't drop her surname. So the family then became, for a period of time, Brownlow-McCandless. But my grandmother dropped that double barrel surname which she had by making Brownlow the middle name of my father, who was her oldest son. And I was also given that as a middle name, and I've now passed it on as a middle name to my eldest son. So you can see that it works in different ways in different cultures, and you can also see that sometimes it can get complicated particularly if the parents don't agree over the name. So it would appear that even today we recognise that names can be significant, deeply significant. You know, a name can determine your status in society. It can determine the image of yourself that is projected into the world. In other words, determining what other people might think of you or what first impression you might make. So with that in mind, let me ask you a question. How did this situation, how did Jesus get his name? What was the process of it? And was there any significance to it? And if there is, what does that mean? What is that significance for us 2,000 years later? 
Well, I believe the answers to these questions are really fascinating and they do have something to say to us today. Today, even as you live your life this coming week, the name that was chosen for him means something really important, not just to us, but for everyone who walks in this planet. Now, there's a lot of things going on in this passage packed in, but one of the major issues of the passage, which is the one I'm going to focus on, is the name of this child. So we're going to look at what really is a story, a story of how Jesus got his name and what it means, and more than that, what it means for us today. So with that in mind, let me just begin by reading to you the first verse of the few we're going to look at today, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, which tells us this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Now, what is significant in this verse is that before they came together, it says, which simply means that they hadn't had any kind of marital relationship at this point. And we see that an angel appears to Mary and says to her that the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and you're going to become pregnant. Now, in Luke's account, she is seen to question the angel, saying, how can this be so? How can I become pregnant when I haven't known a man? And in Luke's account, we'll find and see that the angel explains to her that the Holy Spirit is going to come upon her, and that is the reason she's going to be with child. Now that elaborates slightly for us what is stated here in Matthew 1.18, which says, well, at this point, that she's found out she's with child by the Holy Spirit. So to put this all very simply and clearly, Mary was a virgin She hadn't been with a man, she hadn't even been with her promised husband yet, Joseph, and yet she has a child. Hence why this is often referred to as the virgin birth of Christ. Now that doctrine does give some people a problem. How could a woman, never having had relations with a man, become pregnant, some ask? That doesn't make sense to some people, and they have a problem with it. Now, I don't really understand why Christians really get hung up on this issue. If they can believe that God made the world and was creator of the universe, well, it seems to me if God has that type of ability to create a world, a universe out of nothing, do you really think it's any kind of problem for him to see that a young virgin girl could get pregnant? The simple reality is that the Bible teaches the virgin birth of Christ. And if you accept all that the Bible says in the opening verses of Genesis, in that that opening phrase, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, then the idea of a virgin birth should not be a problem. But there's one little detail here about Mary that might be helpful. We're not given this information in its entirety here, but if we run it in parallel with Luke's account, where we were told that she went to see Elizabeth, her cousin, who at that time was six months pregnant with John the Baptist, by putting together this and some other scriptural references, Bible scholars have come to the conclusion that at this point, Mary was about three months pregnant. In other words, it's possible she was beginning to show. Now that's Mary, that's her introduced, that's her situation described. Let's now shift to the second main character in this story, where we are introduced to Joseph, and let's see what he does and says. Verse 19. 
Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in his mind, or in the old King James it said, he was mindful to divorce her quietly. Now what's going on here is this, and we also know this from Luke, that she's about three months pregnant and Joseph doesn't want to disgrace her. So he plans, as it's said in the King James, to put her away secretly. So what's going on? What does this mean? Well, I believe that in order to understand what this verse means, you have to understand a little bit about the marriage customs in the ancient times in the nation of Israel. Today, in modern Europe or America, it tends to work like this. You meet someone, you go out on dates with them, you get engaged, and then you get married. Those are the three phases in getting married normally in the West. But here, and in the ancient times of Israel, the arrangement was a little different. First of all, the arrangement was initially usually made between the child's parents, the parents of the would-be bride and bridegroom. One historian, contemporary historian from that time, I read, said this, and I quote, marriage was far too serious to be left to human passions. So then, as today, in some parts of the world, the parents made the arrangements. But in this situation, in this culture at this time, they made those arrangements well, well in advance. This was the way they did it in biblical times. So Mary and Joseph would have had this arrangement made probably when they were young, and it would probably have involved their parents whilst they were actually very young. Now, the next phase of the marriage was called the Petropol period. Now, that usually happened about a year before the marriage ceremony itself was planned. And during that phase, the couple were, for all intents and purposes, considered married, although they would not have consummated the marriage yet. Now, if during that period the girl at any point felt she didn't approve, she, the female, was free to back out. But beyond that, the relationship was binding. If the relationship was to be broken at all, you had to do it by strict rules. As a matter of fact, if the man died during the period, the woman was considered a widow and would inherit his estate. But then, of course, the final phase would be the marriage proper. So that little bit of background explains what's going on here. Verse 18 said Mary was betrothed to Joseph. So it's telling us they're in that phase where they were not yet together in the sense of consummating the marriage and they hadn't had the marriage ceremony. And Joseph at this point, her husband, has discovered that she's pregnant. And the text says, I like the King James where it says he was mindful that he would put her away secretly. You see, if during this petrol period, the woman to whom you were engaged became pregnant by another man, the Mosaic law actually required that she would be taken outside and stoned to death. So now we see here in the first part of verse 19 that he was considering what he should do and considering what the law says. But if he stood up and said that she'd committed adultery, she'd been with another man, she would have been taken out and stoned to death. So on one hand, part of him probably wanted to do what the religious law says, but apparently he clearly loved her and he didn't want to humiliate or endanger her. So he was considering doing something different. He didn't want to make a public example of her. So his dilemma is played out in verse 19 and he's thinking about what to do. 
Putting her away just meant secretly divorcing her so as not to publicly humiliate her and at the same time not require that the mosaic law option of her being stoned be played out. I just want to pause here for a moment because I think this verse tells us something interesting about Joseph. The fact that it says he was mindful, he's pondering these things, seems to suggest to me that here we have a gentle, rational man, or certainly someone who has that aspect of his personality in his behaviour. But it also seems to me that he's a person who is probably undergoing a great emotional conflict at this time. He knew he had a difficult decision to make. And that can happen to us, Cantus. Our heart can tell us to do one thing and our minds can tell us to do another. So here he was, torn between a desire to protect Mary on the one hand and the desire to be religiously correct on the other, between choosing a public disgrace and potential death of her and a quiet private divorce. So he was probably struggling between what his conscience said and his love and respect for her. I wonder if you can identify with that. Have you ever had a problem and you struggled to know what was the right thing to do? Where your heart said one thing and your head said another? Well, I believe that's where Joseph is here in verse 19. But at this point, in verse 20, a third character enters the story. Let's look. But as he considered this, that's Joseph it's talking about, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So notice that the angel appears and actually calls him son of David. Now, in one sense that's true. He is in the line of the ancient Hebrew king, but this child is Mary's child, not his so this is deeply significant and especially significant in relation to understanding this as a gospel event, a previously prophesied gospel event. Back at the start of chapter 1 verse 1, this book starts out by saying this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ as being from the tribe of Judah who is from the family line of David. In fact, the Old Testament prophecies constantly narrow it down until it pinpoints that the Messiah will indeed be born of the family of David and it even names the town that he'll be born in, Bethlehem. But here for the first time of many times in the New Testament, it will point to the fact that these events will be fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. So the angel calling Joseph son of David and saying don't be afraid to marry her well, it helps Joseph greatly in the decision he has to make. This relieves the tension and probably in every way helps resolve his dilemma. He is no longer perplexed by his situation. He has a confident route out. He knows that Mary did not commit adultery. He believes that what the angel has said and God has done. So he knows that the Mosaic law shouldn't apply in this case. And he also knows that he doesn't have to put her away secretly. He accepts this situation with faith and grace. And he also knows that he can go through with the marriage and marry this young woman that he loves and respects. But that's not the end of the story. The angel then adds in verse 21 that she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. 
So here we are. We're at the crux of it. The passage makes a big deal about what his name is to be. So right, he's born of a virgin. This new child is going to be born of a virgin, but but that's not the main point of this verse. The point here I want to make sure you get hold of is the fact that they are told he is to be called Jesus. Now Jesus is the Greek translation of a Hebrew word, and the Hebrew word is Yeshua, transliterated often as Joshua. And Yeshua, Joshua, literally means Jehovah saves. So connected within the name of Jesus is the whole idea of being saved by God. As a matter of fact, look at this verse. The reason it tells them they want to call him Jesus is it actually adds and interprets for them. It says it's because he will save his people from their sins. Now this reference, his people, is obviously a reference to the Jews, but the rest of the text will make clear that he is the Lamb of God that died for the sins of the whole world. So this salvation that will be offered by Jesus the Messiah will include the whole world in it. But I I want to make clear that the main point at this juncture of naming Jesus is to point out that he is the one who can and will save people from their sin. I'll say a little bit more about that, but for today let's just finish off this part of the passage. Verses 22 and 23 say, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. And then it's a quotation marks. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Jesus here has been given his first name, but he's also given a second name. Well, the second name is actually a title and it is the name, the title, Emmanuel. And the meaning is also given for us which is God is with us. So the God, the one who is with us, will be seen to be the one who will save us. And that is Jesus. So let's just talk for a moment about this reference that has been quoted here by the angel because it comes from the prophet Isaiah in chapter 7 verse 14. And that is what has been quoted here in this passage. And this is where the title Emmanuel, used by Isaiah, is applied to Jesus as the Christ. The full text of the Isaiah prophecy says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, and the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel. Now some people again like to try and make a problem out of this because they say the Old Testament, the word that is translated virgin, that word should actually be translated and can also be translated as just young woman. Now have you ever had someone tell you the Bible doesn't teach the virgin birth? Well if they do, they like to hone in on this verse in Isaiah and say the phrase used just means young woman. Have you ever had that happen? Well, if you're ever in discussions with people, particularly if they're non-Christians, it's one of the sort of the go-to complications that they try and throw into the mix. And as it happens, and it's been brought up to me a number of times in my life as a Christian, I'd like to address it for you, if I may. Now, it is true that that word used in Isaiah can mean simply young woman. But what should be added is it actually means young woman 
of a marriageable age. Now you're describing someone as a young woman in the sense of them being a child in the Old Testament context could have allowed the writer to have used another word. By choice of the word here, Bible experts would say that it's implying that not only is she not married, but she was marriageable age, and by the fact that she was marriageable of age means that she would have been a virgin. As a matter of fact, this word specifically only occurs six times in the Old Testament, and all the other references bear out the fact that what is implied by the use of the word is the fact that this is a young woman of marriageable age and of unblemished character. So just flippantly pulling that word out in isolation and saying it means young woman and not holding it within the context of the passage is not accurate. When you take this word and apply it in the context of the Old Testament where it has actually been drawn out of and quoted in the New, it can only mean a young woman who would have by nature have been a virgin. In fact, when the Old Testament was translated into Greek, which was about 200 years before Christ appeared and 250 years before the Gospel accounts appears, those translations, when they got to Isaiah, they chose the Greek word that's used here, the same word that's being used in the Gospel accounts, to suggest that this young woman was not just a young woman, she was a virgin. The Greek word they used actually just simply means virgin. So they clearly, looking back, read and understood Isaiah 7.14 to be talking about a virgin. And the fact that Matthew argues that that's, and uses that word, and that Luke uses the word, not the word he could have just chosen to use as a single woman, tells us that these New Testament writers, these New Testament apostles, also believed that because they chose the same thing. So if anybody says to you Isaiah 7.14 just means young woman, doesn't mean virgin, you can say, hold on, that may on the face of it be true, but in representing her as a young woman of good character, in that society would absolutely implied that she was a virgin, and therefore by nature implies the virgin birth. And besides later, if Matthew and Luke chose the word virgin under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the accounts that they were creating, then for me, I'm afraid that's it. It's over and done with in my estimation. There's nothing more to discuss. But there's another issue we need to talk about. But what we'll do is, we'll do that in the next episode and we'll try and begin to draw this all together. So I'll see you next time. Okay, friends, that's it for today. Thank you so much for joining me. I hope you find that helpful. I know I've left you standing on the bit of an edge of a, of a problem looking over, but I hope we're going to address that for you next time so it'll be worth coming back tomorrow. And also we'll be able to close out and think about what this really means, not just for those people who it was written to and would have received it at that time, but what this all means for us today, what the naming of Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, really means for us today. And don't forget, there are lots of ways you can connect with my ministry and other teaching resources I make available. Just this week, I have a new 12-session, 30-minute series on developing uh, your skills as a Bible 
preacher if that's something you feel called to do. You find that on my Patreon page and on my LinkedIn page and also on YouTube. There'll be an episode, video and audio appearing every week for the next 12 weeks. But that's it for today. Thank you so much for joining me. What a wonderful journey we're on. I hope you're getting even half as much out of it as I'm getting in preparing these talks every day. And I'll see you right back here tomorrow. Well, it'll be tomorrow for me. Whatever day you happen to pop open your phone or whatever it is you use, whatever way you access this podcast. But either way, I'll see you right back here very soon on the Bible Project Daily Podcast. Bye-bye for now.